Today's scripture reading is found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Hear the word of the Lord. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has been long hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in the chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Man, thank you, Scott. Thank you, worship team. And thank you, Trinity Church, for just that acknowledgement, appreciation. You all are always so gracious to us as a staff and appreciating us, and not just in October, but all through the year. So thank you for that. And good morning, Trinity. So good to see you here this morning, and uh, th thank you for staying to this point of the service. Our uh, daughter and her two little boys were with us in the first service, and we got to this point after the scripture reading. Our little three-year-old said loud enough for everybody else to hear, are we done now? <laughs> so, so, yeah, probably it's what a lot of us have thought. You know, it's like, okay, we've sung, we've heard scripture. Can we just go home now? I don't have to listen to this message. But I hope you will stick around and stay engaged. It's really some great stuff that Peter has for us in this passage this morning. And uh, let me just add my encouragement to uh, for next week, it is right now, if you can trust a week out, but it's looking good for the whole weekend in terms of weather, so we should be able to be out at the terraces outside, and I've really been looking forward to this first time in a long time that we've been able to have everybody at Trinity together, one place, one time, to worship and celebrate together, and that's what this service will be about next week. So if you haven't made your reservations online, please do that. Let us know you're coming. We can plan accordingly and uh, be there. You get an extra hour of sleep, so you lose that excuse. It's outside, and we're trying to do this as safely as we can. Everybody's bringing their own chairs, social distance. We can do all that good stuff, and there's food afterwards. So, I mean, this is, this is going to be a great opportunity. And Dana will be back uh, for kind of a uh, for us to thank him since he ended his tenure as our interim music director during COVID while we were not having services. And so we wanted him back one more time just to officially thank him. And he's also participating with Allison and our team to lead the music. And so I'm, I'm excited about that opportunity just to spend a little extra time praising the Lord together. So we've asked them to do even more music than a typical Sunday as part of the way we just thank God for his graciousness and faithfulness to Trinity Church over our years of existence. So I um, hope you can be a part of that 
on, on Sunday next week. And then Operation Christmas Child, again, just put my two cents in it as pastor. I know it's a little different. You don't have the visible uh, aids every week, seeing the boxes when you come in or taking one home. But please don't forget this. The children and the needs are still out there this year. We want to be a blessing to kids all over the world. Trinity has always been so gracious and, and active in participating. Usually five, 600 boxes or more that we pack every year. So even though we're doing it virtually, we still want to hit that, that goal and exceed that goal and bless those kids who will receive an actual box, not a virtual box. They'll get the real thing, even though we're packing them virtually. So um, um, if you haven't gotten on that, sign up. Again, the missions committee is making it easy. If, even if you don't want to go online to figure out how to pack it virtually, just send the check to Trinity, and the missions committee will do that work for you. So trying to make this as accessible to everyone as we can. Uh, so let's pause for a minute. Let's go to prayer. Let's ask God to really help us engage with his word and respond to him this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this uh, precious blessing of coming together as your people. I thank you for those that are joining us online and are live streaming the service right now and are praying with us and singing with us and engaged in your word with us right where they are at home. I thank you for them. I thank you for them taking time out to be a part of this service too. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that we can hear from your word and that the truth of your word cuts through the, the darkness and the error of our world and brings us your revelation of what you have done, of your salvation, of your plan. And so, Lord, this morning, help us to receive your word with joy and with gratitude. And then let us help, help us to respond to your word by actively changing our lives, changing our behavior to follow you, to obey you in what you tell us this morning. And Lord, I pray, as I always do, that you would help me to accurately communicate what you want said, what you want to be our focus this morning. I pray that you would work through not just my words, but work through your living word, most importantly, and that by the, by the person of your Holy Spirit at work in us, that you would counsel us, teach us, transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus. All this this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So maybe you had the same experience as I did when I was uh, a kid in grade school. When the school that I attended, we would start every day by standing up right beside our desks. We'd put our hands over our hearts. We would look toward the flag. It's kind of over in our corner over here this way. Look toward the flag, and we would say the Pledge of Allegiance. Do you remember it? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now, I thought about it. I haven't quoted that, said that for a good while until I thought about it this week. You don't hear it quite as often. And I know a pledge to our country, to our flag, is not absolutely necessary for us as Christians. But I thought in the, the sense that the things that are going on in our country right now, maybe we could use a little bit more of this pledge and certainly the heart behind it. And when I thought about it, what I camped on, what I landed on was that last phrase especially. I don't think I'd ever noticed that. Certainly hadn't paid attention to it as a kid when I said the pledge. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and 
justice for all. Part of what we claim to be a a founding principle of our country. But is that possible? Can we promise, even in America, can we promise justice for all? Well, you look, turn on the news, you listen to much of what's going on. There are cries for justice and cries about injustice. And the problem is when one, one person's justice will often be somebody else's injustice. So how do we find, what is justice? And I think it's fascinating that as we come to this passage this morning, And as we think about that phrase, and as I began to realize this week in preparing for this message, and as Christians, we know that only God can make that promise of justice for all. Only God can do that because only God knows all the facts. (laughs) Only God knows the whole truth. Only God can be perfectly fair with every single individual. Only God knows the heart of every individual. And because of that, only God can provide justice for all. So what does his justice look like? Well, in the passage today, Peter addresses that. He assures us that God is just, will be just, and that specifically, as he says in this passage, he can rescue the righteous and he will judge the wicked. That's God's justice. And he addresses this in this passage because the early church, even though it was only 30 years after Christ had died and risen from the dead and and ascended into heaven, already there were false teachers. There was false doctrine, false teaching in the church. That early, that soon. So Peter writes this letter to expose those false teachers, to warn the church not to fall prey to Satan's lies. And we need that warning just as much today as they did 2,000 years ago. Because Satan is essentially the original false teacher, right? Remember back in the garden, Adam and Eve, he comes in the form of the serpent and he tells them, a lie. He, he adds it to a little bit of the truth, as Satan often does. And he comes to them, he says, well, if you eat that fruit, you will become like God. You won't die as God had said they would. He contradicted God's words, and he led Adam and Eve into that first sin. And it's continued on since then. So, as Peter's going to describe here, false prophets throughout the nation of Israel's history. There would be false teachers in the church, and there have been throughout our church history. There have been fake Christians and false gospels along the way. And one day, the Bible tells us, Satan will put forward a false Christ, the Antichrist, who will lead the world astray away from God and in rebellion against God and His church and His truth. And that will bring about final judgment. So, how can there be justice for all? When will it come? How will God reward the good and destroy the bad? Well, this is what we have in chapter 2. So, I invite you to turn there. If you're not there already, take your Bible, your phone, device, whatever you've got. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're at home watching this online, stream, live streaming this, please do the same. Get a Bible, open it up, follow along, take some notes. We're in 2 Peter. We've called this series All You Need because Peter says that Jesus Christ 
in God's Word and in His coming has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And this, this morning in this passage, he goes on to say, and he is all that we need to find perfect, true, full justice as well. And we need to trust that he has that, that he will do that, that one day he will set all things right. And so what we have here in this passage, verses 1 to 9, that Scott read for us, is really one key point, but I want to break it up into two parts. So the first, he shows us the problem. That's verses 1 to 3. And then he's going to get to the solution. The solution is verses 4 to 9. So we'll kind of tack that on to the second part. It becomes one full sentence that I think is the statement of what Peter is telling us today. And it begins like this. False teachers pose a serious threat to the church. They did in the first century. They do still today. Remember at the end of chapter 1, and Jason, his message last week on uh, the end of chapter 1, Peter's talking about the Old Testament prophets and those who spoke from God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke, as they wrote the Old Testament. Those were the true prophets of God. But now as he transitions into what is our chapter 2, Peter then says in verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So in Israel, while there had been those true prophets who delivered God's word, there were also false prophets who spoke against God's truth and brought Satan's lies to bear. And he says, Peter's telling us, you know, that was true in the past and it's going to continue to be true. Here, even just at the beginning of the church, he's saying there will be and there will continue to be false teachers. You need to watch out. Peter knew about them, that maybe they weren't in full swing yet for the church. He still talks about them in future tense, but Peter knew enough to know what they were like, and so he gives us here in chapter 2, the beginning part of this, the beginning, the, some descriptions, some characteristics of these false teachers, and then he's going to go on to give us some more. So in two weeks after our fall celebration, Jason will pick up the last half of chapter 2 where he goes into even more detail about these false teachers. So we're just getting kind of an introduction today. It'll fill out in a couple of weeks. So what does this look like? What's the false teaching look like? Three characteristics in verses 1, 2, and 3 in our passage this morning. And the first is this one. It's heretical teaching. Now, no surprise, they're false teachers, so you expect false teaching, heretical teaching from them. And that's what he says, the rest of verse 1. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So, notice about this, it's seductive, it's, it's subtle, it's secretive. And this is always the case with Satan's schemes. It's, it's really how he works. This affirming of part of the truth, and then once you've kind of bitten into that, said, well, that sounds good, then he lays on top of that his lie so that you'll swallow it whole. That's Satan's scheme. And, and Peter's saying that's what, the, that's what the false teachers were doing as well. And the particular theological issue that he identifies here is that they were denying the deity and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Denying, Peter says, the very Lord who bought them. Now, when you read that phrase, it sounds like, well, wait a minute. If these are false teachers. 
the Lord who bought them, that makes it sound like they were true Christians. No, but that's not what Peter's saying. You understand the difference here. We know from the description they denied the person and the work of Jesus. They were not true Christians. What Peter is reminding us of is that Jesus paid the price for everyone on the cross. His death on the cross is sufficient for all. But it's only applied to those who come to him and repent of their sin and receive that gift of forgiveness for themselves. These false teachers had not done that. Jesus had paid the price for their sin, for their forgiveness, but they hadn't received it. They didn't believe. They rejected the Lord who paid the price for them. That's what Peter's telling us. And, and he's showing us what really is to be a, a litmus test for, for doctrine. We must always test anything we hear and see and read by what they say about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It always comes down to that. We've got to make sure we have that right, and you test everything by that. So these false teachers denied Christ's authority. They denied his lordship, and that made their teaching destructive, destructive to themselves because they were without faith and destructive to others who would believe what they were teaching. You know, Beth and I love listening to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, just because they're a great choir and orchestra. And uh, they actually go by the name the Tabernacle Choir. They've just kind of subtly pulled the name Mormon out of it. But it's part of the Mormon church. And, and, and I know that. So when I hear that, and I hear them singing, which they often do, these traditional, beautiful hymns of the faith, hymns that I grew up with and maybe many of you grew up with. And I listen to, what they, I listen to the words and say, that's true, but that's not what the Mormon teach, church teaches or believes. I know that, especially when it comes to the personal work of Jesus Christ. See, because Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, the Mormon, what I would call a false religion, took the Bible, the truth of God, and then laid on top of that his own truth, his own beliefs, his own error, and so you have a false religion. Again, it's just the way that Satan often works. And so it's this, this strange feeling when I listen to these, this choir singing these words that I know the words are truth, but they're not words most of those people, as far as I can tell, believe. And that's what Peter is describing here about these, these teachers. And it's the same thing that's wrong with Mormonism. It denies the deity and the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what he describes in verse 1. This, he says, these teachers are teaching a destructive heresy. And it was also a depraved conduct. That's verse 2. So it's not just what they said, it's how they lived. He says, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. So Peter is warning that these false teachers not only teach error, but they are living in error. They are living out their own lie. The wording here for depraved conduct actually literally means reckless, hardened immorality. That's the description Peter gives of their lives. They were teaching the devil's lies, and they were living like the devil at the same time. 
So he says, if you don't hear it in their teaching, then look at their lives, and you will see the error, the problem right there. I mentioned in the introduction to the book study a couple of weeks ago when we started Second Peter that the book, the book of Jude, this one-chapter book of Jude, parallels Second Peter. A lot of the same kind of themes and, and ideas. And this is true right here. So in Jude with chapter 1, which is only one chapter, but the fourth verse, he says this, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our sovereign, our only sovereign and Lord. See how it's so much the same as what Peter has just said. Same character traits, denying the lordship of Christ and living in immorality. And sadly, Peter says, many will follow them. Like, how could this be? If their teaching is wrong and their lives are messed up, the people will follow them, Peter says. And in the end, the way of truth, he says, the gospel will fall into disrepute. Now, I'm not going to use names this morning. I'm not going to give you a list of things. But if you've been around the Christian world for the last years or decades, then you have seen this yourself. You can think of the images and the, and the people and the names. Christian leaders who have spoken on behalf of God, on behalf of the church, people have listened to, followed, and their public ministry has looked stellar. And then at some point when something has been exposed from their private life, that immorality, that failure, it becomes public. And what happens? The gospel, the church, Christianity falls into disrepute. Look at this. Here it is. It shows you it's all a sham, this leader who failed. And Peter is saying, watch out for that. Watch not only what they say, but how they live. And the warning was true in AD 65 or 66 when Peter wrote this. It's still true today. There's one more characteristic that Peter gives us here in verse 3. It's greedy commercialism. So he says, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. So not a big surprise here that Peter would add this in right here to the false teachers. Not only are they teaching the wrong thing, not only are they living wrong with their immoral lives, but they, he says they're in it for the money. They're greedy. They exploit others, which is an interesting Greek word for the, that translation, exploit. The word is emporine, which, from which we get our word emporium. So it has to do with buying and selling commercialism, if you will. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying these false teachers, they don't care for the flock. They're only out to fleece the flock. They want to take, not give. They were fakes. In fact, he says they were making up these fabricated stories as the NIV translation. That's another interesting Greek word. It's the word plastos, from which we get our English word plastic. So he said it's, it's made up. It's put together. It's fabricated. They make up these stories, tell people what they want to hear to get them on board. They lead them astray, and they take them for all they're worth. The false teachers were corrupted by the same things, you see, Peter says, that corrupt people today. 
I want you to see how much things have not changed. The issues are money, sex, and power. Same corruptive measures in our day. And Peter just reverses the order here. So it was power, their authority over Christ's authority, and it was sexual immorality, and now it's money as well, he says. (coughs) Greed. But, Peter says, judgment is coming. This judgment, he says, is hanging over their heads. He's reminding us now, God sees this. God knows this. And you may not see his action right now, but God is not asleep at the wheel. And so that's where he's going to go in the second half of our passage today. He's reminding us that God is, is going to, has and will act. So, again, the first point, the first half of our statement for this passage, false teachers pose a serious threat to the church. He's shown us that. But here's point number two. God will rescue the righteous and judge the unrighteous. Now, you got to see Peter's structure here in verses 4 to 9. It's actually fascinating. If you heard Scott as he was reading it or you're following in your Bible, in the NIV at least, it has one long sentence from verse 4 right down through the end of verse 9, right? So there's a bunch of commas and semicolons and parentheses in there, but it all just strings along as one sentence. And that's an accurate translation because that's what it is in the original language as well. One long sentence and one of the longest in the Bible. Because Peter is giving us this extended if-then statement. So he's saying, you know, if this, if God did this in the past, then God will do this in the future. If he was like this in the past, he'll be like this in the future. That's the if then. But it takes him a while to get there because in the if section, he gives us three examples from history. And so you've got to hang with Peter in that if then statement as we walk through this. He's saying essentially, where he gets to in verse 9 is, if God punished evil and he rewarded righteousness in the past, and he shows that he did, then he will do the same in the future. So what's the first example? Three examples again. Three things that he shows. Verse 4 has the first one, fallen angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment... And we're left hanging because he's not going to get to the then part of the statement until verse 9. So here's his first example. And he's most likely talking about the fall of the angels. Remember when Lucifer was in heaven, one of the angels of God, he rebels against God out of his own pride, and he leads other angels astray to follow him. He becomes Satan, or the devil, as we call him. And his followers, those other angels, what we call fallen angels or demons. And Peter says, in their rebellion or because of their rebellion against God, they are under God's judgment. In fact, he says here, they are in chains, probably meaning that they will not, cannot escape the judgment that God intends for them. Now, we know their final judgment is still future. But Peter is looking back and saying, God has already pronounced judgment on those angels who rebelled against him. Again, the book of Jude helps us out here. He gives another similar description, verse 6 of Jude. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So, Peter's point here is that if God has already judged the angels who rebelled, then he will certainly judge 
human beings who rebel against Him. It's kind of an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God would, would judge His angels that He created who were with Him in heaven, if He has pronounced judgment on them, will He not do the same when we as His creation, as humankind, rebel against Him, bring judgment on us as well? And even though we may wonder, we say, well, we don't see it yet. We don't, it hasn't happened fully yet. Even though there's this sense of seeming delay, Peter says, it is inevitable and inescapable for the angels and for humankind. So the angels are first example. Then he moves to another one, the ancient flood. So verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So again, he leaves it hanging because he's going to go to another one. But here's his example, Noah and the flood. And this must have been one of Peter's favorite Old Testament stories because he talks about it in 1 Peter 3, if you remember that in our series in 1 Peter. He talks about it here in 2 Peter 2. We're going to see it again in 2 Peter chapter 3. So he must have loved this story. And if you watched our video we sent out yesterday, you saw me reading the story of Noah and the ark to little Mark, and, and we're talking about that and how it's brought about in Peter. So why does, why does Peter choose this? Why does he use this example? What's the point? Well, what we see in the story of Noah is that God's justice is not based on a majority rule or majority decision. Because if you went by the majority, everybody else in the world except Noah's family was rebelling against God. That's why the flood had to be a worldwide flood. And so he says these eight that were saved, Noah plus seven, well, that's his family. That was Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. That's it. Only eight out of the entire world that were saved in the flood. But you also see God's grace and mercy here too. Because what Genesis tells us is that God gave a 120-year warning before the flood came. And he did it through Noah. And Peter talks about this. He was a preacher of righteousness. So we talked about this back in 1 Peter. Noah is out there while he's building this ark, and he's telling people, God's judgment is coming. The flood is coming. Turn now. Repent now. And through all those years, all that patience of God, only Noah's family believed and trusted in him. And here's the point that Peter is making. God has the power and the will to punish the rebellious and to save the repentant. It was true in Noah's day, and it will be true on Judgment Day. He always has had that power, and he always will. So here's where it gets kind of personal for us, because if we look at our own lives, if we're resisting God, putting it off, putting off getting right with him or even coming to him. And may, I don't know, maybe this morning some of you are here, you've, you've heard God's offer of salvation, you've heard the gospel, and you're thinking, yeah, one day I need to do that. I need to get right with God. I need to repent of my sin, but I'm just not quite ready yet. The story of Noah reminds us, you don't know when that day for sure will come. You don't know when your last day will be. You don't know when the rains will begin and judgment will suddenly be upon you. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the day to repent. 
and give your life to God. And, and maybe for those of us that already know him, sometimes there are things in our lives that we just kind of hold on to, a particular habit or a sin or my own agenda, my own way, and I don't want to let go of that, and I resist. I say, well, someday I'll get to that. I'll, someday I'll, I'll do that. God's patient. God's gracious. But at some point, that comes back to hurt us if we wait. No, we were, uh, yesterday I mentioned in the, at the beginning that our daughter and her two boys were with us. Her husband was away this weekend, so they came and stayed with us for the weekend, which was wonderful to have them with us. And that's why Mark ended up on the video yesterday, because he was with us. And, and yesterday, we also went up and, and we're going to play, hit tennis ball around a little bit on a court that's not too far from our house. And it started raining as we went up to the tennis court. And so we had to go under a little shelter that's by the tennis court there, a little deck area. And so we're playing, hitting the tennis ball back and forth up there on the deck. And all of a sudden, Mark stopped, and his three-year-old eyes just lit up, and he went, I saw lightning. And then sure, sure enough, a second later, then we heard the rumble of the thunder. And so I said, Mark, what should we do? And he said, we should go home. <laughs> I said, yeah, we should go home now. And so we started to gather the stuff together, put together rackets and gather up all the balls. And all of a sudden, Mark just almost, he teared up and he almost broke it. He said, but I want to keep playing. I thought, man, what a picture of us. We, we see the warning signs in our lives. We see the lightning. We hear the thunder. We know we should deal with that. We should get right with that. We should repent of that. But deep down, it's like, but I want to keep doing my thing. And even though we know it's dangerous, we stay in it. That's the warning of Noah's story. That's the warning that Peter is reminding us of. Don't hang on too long. Yes, God is patient. God is gracious. But we have a responsibility to repent and come to him. Peter gives one more example of God's ability to judge and to save. And it's the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, an interesting one. Here's verses 6 to 8. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, by burning them to ashes. And he made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that, a, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his, righteousness, his righteous soul by the lawless deeds of, that he saw and heard. So again, this, this still hasn't quite finished the sentence. It'll finish in, in verse 9. But here's another example. And this is an interesting one that, he would, that Peter would pull out. You know the story of Lot. He is the nephew of Abraham. So Abraham and Sarah and Lot and their families moved from their home t- uh, hometown. They moved to Canaan. God called Abraham to Canaan. Lot came along. As their families began to grow, they had to kind of separate and go to their own ways. And Abraham said, hey, tell me which way you want to go, and I'll go the other way. And Lot chose to move himself and his family to Sodom. Now, it was beautiful countryside. That's why he chose it. But it was also a problem because the sins of the Canaanites there was great. Sodom and Gomorrah, it's, it's a name used even in our day to refer to evil and to immorality. And Lot placed himself and his family right in the middle of that. And, you know, the book of Genesis doesn't tell us this, but Peter adds, revealed, you know, from 
the Spirit of God to him, he said Lot was distressed by this depravity of the society around him. He's tormented by this evil around him. So here's Lot. He, he's trying to hold on to his faith in God, but he's surrounded by this temptation and this sin and this evil all around him. Does it sound familiar? It's a lot like what we face in our day. And I think Peter is using this example. I look at this and I think, well, why doesn't, he, why doesn't he use Abraham? He's a much better example of faith in God, right? Lot was, he believed in God, but he wasn't the stalwart of faith like Abraham. He's just kind of barely hanging on to his faith. And yet I think Lot wants to show us this example of, of faith and God's mercy on us in the midst of sin and a society of sin. So eventually we come to this time, God could no longer tolerate this. He tells Abraham and Lot that he's going to destroy the cities by fire. Remember, Abraham pleads with God, you know, if, we, if there are 50 righteous, God says, okay, I won't destroy it. How about 40, 30, 20? He's negotiating with God. He finally gets down, God, if there are just 10 people, righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, will you save? And God says, then I'll, I'll be merciful, I'll save it. But there's not even 10. It's only Lot and his family of four. That's it. Again, you see the similarities to, Mo, to, to Noah's story, right? And so, God saves Lot and his family. Even though Lot is reluctant, doesn't want to leave, God brings this judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So uh, the Peter's point here is really, imp- we got to grab this. He's saying God will punish wickedness, but that he's merciful to those of us who cling to him and try to follow him in the midst of that wickedness. He's merciful to save. Genesis 19, 16, we'll put on the screen here. It says, when he, speaking of Lot, hesitated, because again, he didn't want to leave the city, the men, the angels who were sent to him by God, grasped his hands, the hands of his wife and of his two daughters, and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. Lot's an example of trying to live for God in the midst of temptation and sin. That's what God has called us to as well. And so Peter wraps up his point. He finally gets to verse 9, and he says, if this is so, in other words, the example of the fallen angels, the example of Noah and the flood, the example of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, if it's true that God both judges sin and he rewards those who trust in him for righteousness, then we can trust it will be true in the future. And that's what he says in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. In other words, God will get it right. God will bring justice for all. God has the ability to do that, and Peter proves it in this passage. So, I think there's two things to take away from this passage. I want to point us to here. First is that when you see evil advancing, when you see false teachers who seem to be enjoying great success, don't be fooled by them. Remember, the Bible talks about that. Evil will prevail until Jesus returns. So don't be surprised by that, and don't be fooled by that. Don't be led astray by the enemy's lies or by the success of these false teachers. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. In fact, I'll make this very personal. As I said to the first service, 
So those of you that are here, those who are watching online, if you come across anything that you read or you hear and you wonder, is this right? Is this true? This group, this preaching that I'm hearing, this teaching that I'm hearing, what I'm reading, is this, is this right? Does this square with God's Word? Ask. Dig into the Word yourself, but come ask them. Jason and myself, we would love as pastors to interact with you about that. Those of you that are in the youth group, Pastor Nick to Charles, come and ask them. These are the kind of things we want to talk to you about. We want to point you to the truth. And if you're hearing something, listening to something, reading something that may be leading you astray, get it right. Get the truth. Check it out. Don't fall for false teaching. That's Peter's warning here. But the second thing is this, that when you face trials in this life, and Peter's talked about that, right? We will face trials. Many of you are in the midst of trials in your life right now. Know that God will be merciful, that he will rescue you, that the righteousness of Christ covers you, and because of that, God will save you. That's his promise, and Peter is showing us these examples so that we know that's the way God has always been and always will be. He will save you. Don't worry. Don't lose hope. Don't be discouraged. The day will come when he will rescue you. You The classic movie, The Wizard of Oz, and Dorothy and Toto are whisked out of their hometown in in Kansas by a tornado, and they land up in in, in Oz, and everything is in color in Oz. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And yet Dorothy wants to get home, right? So the whole movie is about her trying to find her way home to Kansas. And so she's told, you know, you have to go to Oz. You have to see the Wizard of Oz. He will find a way to get you home. And, but the way to get there is you've got to follow the yellow brick road over and over. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. And so through all the things she experiences, all these crises and issues and problems, it's always come back to the yellow brick road. So they finally get to Oz, and what happens? They discover that the wizard is a fake. He can't really do anything. He's not really all powerful. He's a shyster, a false teacher, right? And so in the end, Dorothy almost loses hope that she will ever get home until Glinda says to her, You can go home. Just close your eyes, tap your heels, and say, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. And she ends up, wakes up, back in Kansas, back in the black and white, and with her family. What this is a reminder to me of is that there are going to be a lot of wizards false teachers out there who want to show you, tell you that they know the way home. Only Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God, the Father. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way home. And that's where your faith needs to land. And so as we come in this passage, and what Peter is reminding us here, he's, he comes around to this, maybe, maybe because Peter was at the end of his life. He, he told us this. He already knew as he wrote these words that his life was near the end. And so he keeps pointing us forward to the day when we will see Jesus, and he will make everything right. 
You know, chapter 3 of this book is going to focus on the second coming of Christ. So hang in there. We're going to get to that, these great promises of the second coming. But for right now, he's reminding us we live in this life, and we live surrounded by temptation and the lies of the enemy and false teaching and sin. But hang on. Hang on to Jesus. And he says the prospect of judgment is what should warn us away from sin, and it should. And the promise of our rescue, of our salvation, should always make us long for home. Our closing song this morning is going to remind us of that, of what it will be like when we see our Lord Jesus face to face. I'm going to ask our team to come on up and do like we did a couple weeks ago. We'll just let this song kind of be our closing response. And I want to read you a couple, some of the words of this song because they so beautifully describe, I think, what Peter is telling us in this passage. So listen to some of these words, and then you'll hear them again when we sing them. It says, Through the dark, though the dark is overwhelming, and the brightest lights grow dim, though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men, certainly what Peter was talking about, Though the wicked never stumble, or seem that they never stumble, and abound in every place, we will all be humbled when we see your face. And that all encompasses just what Peter was saying. Those who reject him will be humbled through judgment. Those who trust in him, believe in him, follow him, will be humbled is the joy of seeing his face. And the chorus says, we will see, we will know, like we've never known before. We'll be found, we'll be home, we'll be yours forevermore. Let's stand together and sing this as our closing response this morning.